From religion to wrestling, gumbo to grits, politics to poetry, and all things southern in between, this is Take on the South. Produced by the Institute for Southern Studies and hosted by the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of South Carolina, Take on the South examines the highs and lows of the American South, examines the truths and fictions of the country's most distinctive region, and picks the brains of some of its most accomplished students. To understand the South, you need to take it on, and that's what we'll be doing. Join us as we Take on the South. Here are a few choice words the media has used to describe the Democratic performance in the November the 2nd Virginia elections. Dismal. Crushed. Clocks cleaned. And they're the ones that I can mention on this podcast. Others were rather more colourful. Several weeks ago, before the Virginia elections, Take on the South invited University of South Carolina political scientist Joshua Meyer Gutbrod to help us prepare for that election. Today, we invite him back to help us make sense of what happened. My name is Mark Smith, and I'm your host for today's Take on the South. Josh, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me again. Oh, my pleasure. So let's just bypass all the rhetorical posturing, all the post-mortem language, and get down to the numbers first. Who won and by how much? Uh, Youngkin and the Republicans appear to have won the House of Delegates as well by a much closer margin. Youngkin won, I think the last count I saw was around 70,000 votes, so it's a relatively tight race. Um, as I, I went back and re-listened to our last podcast and see if I said anything crazy, and I said it was going to be tight, and um, nobody was going to walk away with a, a clear legislative mandate, and I think that's what we're seeing. I listened to, and I thought you were very prescient about this. Um, it, it was always going to be tight, and it turned out to be tight. It just turned out to be tight on the other side. That is to say, nobody really expected a Republican victory for the governorship. Uh, I don't know if I necessarily agree with that. I think politics as usual, we might expect that given that the incumbent presidential party always struggles to do well in states like Virginia. And of course, coming into the midterms, we have a history of uh, midterms and Virginia being a precursor to that flipping towards the opposition party, both as a referendum on presidents, which inevitably become unpopular as they fail to produce policies, thanks to our complex system, uh, but also just as a, a balancing act. Americans tend to like to balance out the parties to some degree, even if subconscious. So we see that balancing occurring in Virginia. Uh, so I wasn't too surprised. It was a little surprising given that Virginia has been trending blue, but it, it didn't shock me. You make a good point. There's a history to this, isn't there? I mean, this is not the first time that Virginia flipped, nor, well, I know New Jersey didn't, but it came near to flipping. Yeah, and state politics, it's one of those delightful things about state politics that people don't realize is that, especially within governor's offices, governor's offices will often flip uh, to the opposition party. That's why North Carolina and Kansas have Democratic governors right now, which doesn't fit the mold. Um, and so it's not surprising that with a Democratic president, we're seeing some Republican governors gain ground um, and especially tight races. And in addition to that, Virginia really has a history of not pr preferring two-term governors. McAuliffe had a history of already being in office. Uh, they, they have that weird institutional structure where they have to pause between terms, and that pause usually sets them back. So in terms of you know the outcomes, that wasn't too surprising. But in terms of the substance of the election, there was a lot of surprising things that happened. Sure, sure. So uh, we had our interview... It was quite a bit before the election, in actual fact, wasn't it? Do you remember how many weeks? Oh, it, it was actually right at the start of uh, in-person uh, early voting, which I think it was mid-October. Now, is this before, and I think it is, but correct me if I'm wrong, is this before McAuliffe made his 
much probably regretted now claim about parental involvement in the education system in Virginia. Yes, it is. It is well before that, which saw a shift. It's also before we saw increased drops in Biden's polls, partially because of the failure to produce policies. So this, in fact, makes you even more prescient. I mean, it was closed before all of this happened, right? Yes. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> it was, we it was, applaud you. It was an interesting election. <laughs> so those two things, uh, the, the Biden poll numbers and the McAuliffe misstep mattered. Absolutely, absolutely. And just overall, the election was interesting. It was it was a highly nationalized election, and people turned out. People turned out way in way higher numbers than we expected. Uh, you were looking at a 55% turnout rate based on voting age population. That's massive. 2017, which remember 2018 midterms, we saw one of the highest turnout rates in a midterm election we've ever seen. In the 2017 Virginia election, it was only 47% turnout. Virginia, New Jersey, Louisiana, these states with off-year elections tend to have very low turnout in state politics. Uh, seeing 55% is, you know, it's good. That's what we want to see with the democracy. Right. So is that largely a function of it just being a reflection of the time, the nationalization of the election, or is it also a reflection of uh, more sort of relaxed voting standards? It's a little bit of both. Obviously, the election was highly nationalized. This was a referendum on Biden. And to some extent, Trump still loomed large. And, and the, the voters that Trump mobilized in 2016 and, and again in 2020, where we saw record turnout, um, they continued to vote, even though he's not on the ballot and, and he's not in office. Um, which is is good. Obviously, we want to see everybody voting. Everybody should turn out. To some extent, that that higher turnout is a product of just a mobilization that we're seeing in the United States for voting. In addition, uh, they had more lax early voting laws. People were able to get to the polls early. And as much as we've seen the national debate around voting restrictions hover around attempts to sort of disenfranchise uh, city voters, which did traditionally vote blue and democratic, more access to voting, lower cost voting will enable everyone to vote. Um, being able to go early to the polls when you're available, it matters as much for, for urban or uh, suburban voters who want to manage their schedule as it does for a rural voter who may live 30 minutes from a polling location, uh, where going in on the Tuesday of election day is kind of a burden, but going in the, you know, the Friday before when you go grocery shopping and knocking out your voting, that can really matter. So, so this leads us quite nicely to the, the, the factors. I mean, which factors were surprising to you, which weren't, which were fairly predictable to you? Give me your big surprise takeaways from this election. The big surprise takeaway is obviously that 55% turnout is huge. We saw increases in turnout, not just in the urban areas, but in the rural communities. In addition, uh, Governor-elect Youngkin really uh, managed to win by big margins in those rural communities. In 45 counties, he scored above 70%, and he passed 80% in 15 counties. That's Those are huge margins. Now, granted, those aren't tons of voters. You know, you're talking three, 4,000 voters at each of those counties, maybe up to 10,000, but those little bits matter and they add up. And then in addition, some of the, something that was surprising but not surprising is you see some of the suburban voters shift back to the Republican Party now that Trump is out of office. That might be a signal that the, the presence of Trump doesn't loom as large anymore, though the rhetoric is still there. So the three surprises are rural, level of participation, and some of the independent vote in the suburban areas. Absolutely. Uh, you know, again, the outcome, not that surprising given what we have a Democratic president. Uh, the outcome with that level of turnout is, is for, some, for a state political election, that's pretty surprising. Your predictable parts, that is to say, the more banal less surprising uh nationalization 
looms large. Uh, if you look at the exit polls, what we're seeing is a referendum on Biden, a referendum on Trump. In both instances, both amongst Republicans and Democrats, they point to those national political parties as heavily influencing their decision. In addition to the nationalization of media uh, and what the major news outlets are talking about, if they're talking about critical race theory or if they're talking about COVID response, things like that, those things tended to loom large with education, of course, being the number one exit poll issue. And what they're really talking about there is, of course, McAuliffe's misstep. Uh, in discussing education, but more broadly, the national rhetoric on masks in schools and critical race theory. So again, we're seeing nationalization across the board. We're seeing it uh, multiple states, multiple elections, for better or worse, not surprising. <laughs> sure. Let me uh, let me follow up and dig, dig a bit deeper on this rural business. I want to read something to you that I read in Politico fairly shortly after the election, and it's from Jane Cleave, who's the Nebraska Democratic Party chair, but this might well apply to all sorts of rural areas. And she said this, What happened in Virginia and New Jersey is a warning sign for what will happen in every statewide election, either U.S. Senate or any statewide office, because the only way you win statewide in a red or purple state is by getting at least 30 to 40 percent of the rural vote. And we used to be able to get that. We don't anymore. We've completely lost touch with them. Is that a fair evaluation? I think there are a lot of factors that remain contingent on whether or not the Democrats can sort of go back into the rural communities. Now, growing up, I come from a family of rural farming Democrats. All my aunts and uncles on my mom's side all came from sort of New Deal Democrats, and they had a strength there. That's disappearing. I've even noticed one generation away my cousins moving towards the Republican Party for various reasons. The question of whether or not they can get that back um, is a question of both policy and messaging. Can they pass policies that are going to benefit these communities? Can they get internet in these communities? Can they get infrastructure in these communities? And messaging ultimately doesn't even matter if you have a nationalized media market, and that's what's dominating these elections. Do those policies even matter? So that's a that's a very complicated question. Certainly, you know, I walked away with a few things to watch, namely, how are the National Democratic Party going to respond to this election? And the first thing they did, you'll note, was pass the infrastructure bill. Uh, that got shuttled through very quickly after the election. Um, and then the other thing to pay attention to going into 2022 is, of course, redistricting. And redistricting matters immensely for these rural communities as well in terms of whether or not Democrats are going to have a chance to sort of regain some of that rural vote. Did uh, did Virginia just release their redistricting plan? Perhaps they have. I have to look. I've seen a draft of some. I know South Carolina has I've been draft. paying attention to the South Carolina draft. Very interesting, by the way. Yes. Some significant shifts in South Carolina. Yes. The entire Senate district basically gone. Yes. There's been some really interesting commentary and good data on redistricting so far, um, and the differences between partisan and nonpartisan redistricting processes. Gerrymandering seems to be a bipartisan goal at this point, as long as it's partisanly controlled. Uh, what seems to make the difference is states where there's a bipartisan process or a nonpartisan process, and that's where you're getting more interesting maps. Yeah, I'll, I'll be very keen to see what Virginia comes up with. That will have an impact. And certainly now that they, you know, obviously the Democrats retain control of the Senate in Virginia, but with the House of Delegates being very closely divided, which it it regularly is. I, I lectured just the other day on the 2017 House of Delegates, where um, essentially the, the majority leader came down to a coin toss because one of the elections for the House of Delegates was tied 50-50. 
And that split the vote 50-50 in the House of Delegates, and they had decided that with a coin toss. Let me ask you a quick aside about this. I mean, so we're seeing this immense interest and participation in politics. Are you also seeing this in your classroom? You know, in political science classes, you typically get some pretty uh, interested students. <laughs> Although I do teach uh, the intro class, the American National Government class, and uh, students are very engaged. I always start class by saying what's what's in the news. Um, I, I make a habit of trying to take whatever's in the news and applying it to course material. And uh, I've noticed that students uh, more recently are very engaged. They're very involved. Um, and they it's delightful to hear them talk about it because you know, we talk about partisan polarization, we're talking about partisan gerrymandering, we're talking about nationalization. You know, these are students who have lived their whole lives under intense partisan polarization at the same time. When I was in college, I still remember my freshman year, we handed out copies of The Vanishing Voter as our book for that year. Yeah. And of course, the theories of The Vanishing Voter is that turnout's dropping, turnout's dropping. We're moving into this sort of non-democratic, nobody cares to vote. And Come 2008, that shifts, and we've only seen it going up since. So certainly, I think it's hard to say whether or not, I think the young people are contributing to this interest in politics and this increased voting. It's a good thing. It's what we need. It is. Um, sort of historical comparisons always rear their head in these circumstances. It reminds me of Jacksonian America, which, you know, in 1824 had a 28% voting participation rate and then we're into the 40s by 1828 you know from from a foreign perspective this kind of raucous engagement is a good thing it's a kind of messaging about the benefits of democracy and the desirability of participation looking ahead what's the next big political well, window for southern states in particular uh certainly the primary season coming around the bend um in class the other day and I asked what's news and the first five things that came out of people's mouths were announcements about elections who's running where um and certainly we're going to start to see the primary season within governor's races for 2022 heat up pretty intensely but also you're seeing primary challenges for house races and senate races as well as the tremendous amount of state legislative races that are on the ballot in 2022 um, it should be a really interesting year. And the parties right now, both the Democratic and Republican parties, in the sense of their big tents, are very wide. And so the primaries should be a very interesting season to see what type of messaging and rhetoric is, is winning at those for those sort of more activated components of the party. Where are your eyes drawn in particular? Any particular or specific state races that you're interested in? I don't think I have anything off the top of my head. Um, we're still early on in the announcements. Have me back in, in February or March, and we'll have another conversation about that. I think we'll have you back rather more often than that. Um, your mainstay of Take on the South. Josh, anything else to share with us? Any parting observations? Uh, 2022 will be interesting, and I look forward to seeing the turnout stay high. Um, I think that's what we need, and if we can get it even higher, getting people turning out, that's get your voice heard. Joshua Meyer-Gutbrod, thank you so much for joining us again. This is Take on the South. Until next time. That was our Take on the South. Let us know yours. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at U of SC South. Take on the South is produced by Matt Simmons of the Institute for Southern Studies. Special thanks to Professor Dave Garner of the University of South Carolina School of Music for composing our music. Tune in next time for another Take on the South. <laughs>